Hello, Questers. This is Mandy, the host of Caster Quest, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle, soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find CasterQuest on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network at ESOPodcast.com. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Uh Uh-huh. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. We are at episode 38. Man. Man, some crazy shit happened during this section. I am super excited to get your reactions. So in this episode, we read chapters 9 through chapter 11 of The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch, a part of the Gentleman Bastard series. Right, and next up, we are going to be reading the interlude titled The Lady of Long Silence all the way through chapter 13 called Orchids and Assassins. So if you're reading along with us, that's the section you get to read this week. Our spoiler policy is simply that Liz has read these books, the Duchess. I have not read these books, so we will not spoil anything past chapter 11 because I haven't read it yet. No promises on other works, but we yeah. <laughs> will not spoil this book for you. We will you. try to remain spoiler-free <laughs> overall. And by the way, if you are reading reading along with the Duke, we just want to say God bless you. I don't wow. know how you guys do it, because there were some cliffhangers. Yeah, absolutely. And some really exciting parts in this episode. So what's your overall impression of the, the chapters that we read this week? Man, it was bloody. It was bloody. You know, there were some things that happened this episode that I was not super impressed with because I thought, hmm, I feel like this is sort of a a cheap way out for our main character. And then this left hook came out of nowhere and sucker punched me right in the feels. Right in the feels. And took away some really awesome characters from for us. So it was very much a shock. I was also uh, pleased that some of the things I predicted came true. You were so spot on in your predictions. Well, a couple of them. There were also several that I got wrong. So that's the way predictions work. But there were uh, a number that I did get right. So I was pretty pleased with that. I'll take the successes where I can get them (laughs) and pretend like the rest of the predictions I made never happened. We're still going to keep making fun of you for thinking that the, the falconer's bird was a girl. That's okay. Or that... The Grey King was Locke's father. That's fine. Oh, you know, that was understandable. I, I totally could have gone there. <laughs> or that uh, the love interest had black hair. <laughs> yeah, 
You like those those dark haired chicks. Uh, you know, I mean, whatever. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the first chapter, which is chapter nine. Actually, you know what? Before we get into that, I want to talk about the fact that we are entering a new part of the book. This is part three called Revelation. And I had some notes about this. Lay them on me. So we open up with a quote from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm -hmm. And I figured since I do a podcast about this, I should probably figure out who exactly this is. And I'd heard of the philosopher Rousseau, but I wasn't certain that that's who this was. But yes, that's that's who this was. The French uh, writer Rousseau who heavily influenced the French Revolution. A, and, and the quote is from a writing called uh, A Meal on Education. And it is a one of the foundational themes of that writing is how a person who is born a good person can remain a good person in a corrupt society. And he envisions in this work an education system that might allow a person an opportunity to remain a good person amidst corruption. Another thing that I thought was interesting is that Rousseau was heavily influenced by another writer by the name of John Locke. Shut up. John Locke. And he is considered the father of liberalism. He was largely responsible for creating the idea of empiricism and the modern concept of self and identity. And I thought Jean for Jean Rousseau and Locke for John Locke. That Scott Lynch is a smart, smart person. Yeah, so I thought I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. And I'm really glad you brought that up because you know, we've been talking about literary devices that we like. And for me, the quote at the beginning of a chapter or a section to set the tone for that section is one of my favorites. And especially if it's a quote that's from real literature, real world, real world literature. So, um, and you know, the quotes from parts one and two Mm -hmm. have been from a Shakespeare play, Henry the sixth. And I actually read parts of that play this week um i I went in thinking i was going to read all three parts of of all the henry plays um very ambitious but then i had to do laundry then our kids were like mom feed us so yeah (laughs) but i read the act and and i kind of refreshed myself on that a little bit and it's interesting both of those quotes were taken from the same monologue and that monologue Mm. is by this character Richard, who later becomes Richard III. And all of these plays are um, part of these historical plays that Shakespeare wrote that were about the War of the Roses. And we've talked a little bit about how this this time in history kind of reminds us of the book and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. kind of the world of Camor. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was pretty cool. And, you know, this character of Richard, um, as I'm reading this play, it really reminds me of Locke in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. He's sort of a tragic villain. He's deformed. He's like in line for the throne, but he's not close. He's like a hunchback mm-hmm. and he has a withered arm. So like by accident of birth, he can't have the normal joys in life. And in this monologue that both of these quotes are taken from, he's talking about that. And he's basically saying, my life sucks. No one's ever going to love me. I can't get what I want. So you know what? I'm just going to step on anyone that I need to. And I'm at least just going to become king because then I can lord it over all of these other people. And he's basically just like, 
fuck everyone else. I'm going to do me and it's going to be easy. So the quote like for part one is where he says, why I can smile and murder whilst I smile and cry content to that which grieves my heart and wet my cheeks with artificial tears and frame my face to all occasions. So it's all about how he's really good at lying and he's just going to do whatever he needs to get Mm -hmm. what he wants. So I thought that was interesting. And there were some parallels to Locke. You know, we've talked about how Locke is stunted in his growth because he was malnourished as a child. Mm -hmm. And so he's never going to be good at fighting. And the same kind of attitude, that kind of like, fuck the world kind of attitude. And there's a lot more that I could get into, but I will later in the podcast. So I don't go in this like... Huge rant at the massive beginning. Massive Shakespeare rant. There will be spoilers for Shakespeare's Henry the Sixth. Thank you for the warning. <laughs> if you haven't read the play or know any history, it's been three hundred years. <laughs> catch the fuck up. But let's get into the actual chapters now. So, chapter nine. When I sat down to read this book, it does not begin. Where I wanted it to begin. Where did you want it to begin? I wanted it to begin right where chapter eight ended on what happens to Locke when his ass gets thrown down the waterfall. That is not what chapter nine is about. (laughs) Yeah, so our main character has just been beaten brutally, shoved into a barrel of horse piss and thrown over a waterfall. And it takes like three sections of the book before we get back to find out. Get back to it, yeah. (laughs) What happens to him? It's really not that bad. I mean, I'm making it sound out like it's, you know, like it's more than it is. It's not at all uncommon for this to happen in novels. And think about, you know, a George R. R. Martin novel where, you know, you might have to wait five oh, years to Lord. find out that Jon Snow didn't die. <laughs> right. Spoilers for Game of Thrones. Spoilers for Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, so this is not that bad. Let's be... Let's be clear about it, right? But no, it doesn't begin where I thought it was going to begin. And that's okay because it's still a pretty interesting part that we get. And what we ha- what happens in Chapter 9 is that we find out that the Doña Sofia Salvara is actually going to have tea with an extremely rich Dowager Countess, Doña Vorchenza. A night tea. A night tea. And I love this. It's It's a pretty cool thing. So she goes up into this tower. The tower, by the way, is amazing. And they have tea on, I guess it's not a veranda. What would you consider it? Yeah, like a glass veranda. It's like a glass veranda. So it's this elder glass structure with an elder glass floor, which is perfectly transparent and looks like you're walking on air. Doña Salvara is not even slightly bothered by this, I would not be able to do it. No, you'd be right back in that elevator. I, I don't think like, I would join that down, tea. bitches. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, keep your spice cake. I, I don't know. That sounded pretty good. I might be willing to. <laughs> I might be willing to crawl out there for the right spice cake. I can just picture you crawl belly down, just like quicksand. Yeah, just move slowly. Try not to pass out. Just roll that cake. Roll it. <laughs> so, uh, if you haven't picked up on it, I'm a little afraid of heights. Uh, the Duke does not like heights. We would not live in an elder glass no, tower. No, we would not. No. Interesting thing about that little aside that has nothing to do with the books. <laughs> I was not always afraid of heights. I used to 
climb things quite regularly, very tall things. Did the king's brother-in-law shove you out of a window one time? Uh, not that I know Just of. Not that <laughs> it happened to a friend. I don't recall. <laughs> no, no ravens picked a hole in my middle of my forehead <laughs> to open up my third eye. That never happened. No, no, I was I used to not be afraid of heights, and somehow, in my late thirties, I somehow became terrified of heights. I don't know what happened, but something happened, and now I struggle to cross tall bridges. You realize, oh shit, I'm not immortal. <laughs> yeah, maybe that. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> so, you used up all your danger <laughs> in the ages of 19 and 29. That could that could very well I be. I think it's true. Yeah, that's good. When I was in the army, I had a nickname of Danger Boy. It's true. <laughs> so I so something happened, and uh, yeah, I used it all up, and now uh, and now I'm I'm terrified of heights. Anyway. Back to the story. Oh, back to the story. No, not back to the story, because many, many times we have told you that we are starting this podcast very late and we don't know what's going to happen, but never has it been more true than it is right now. Buckle up, bitches. (laughs) Anything (laughs) could happen. So anyway, back to the tea on the glass veranda. So we end up with uh, Donia Salvara coming to the Dowager, and she essentially explains that she explains that she has a problem that she knows that some of the other Donias have been able to come to uh, Donia Vercenza, and their problems have been able to fix themselves. And she intimates that Donia Vercenza knows the Midnighters and is somehow in connection with the Midnighters or the Duke's spider that she can make things happen. And then she explains to Donia Vercenza that she's being taken advantage of by the Thorn of Emberlane. Of Camor. I'm sorry, the Thorn of Camor. We haven't gone to Emberlane. Oh, okay. Thank you. The Donia Selvara leaves and Donia Vercenza ends up drawing in uh, one of her captains, and they start having this conversation. And it turns out that Donia Vercenza is the spider. Yes. Which I thought was pretty cool. Pretty cool. And they want to draw out the thorn of Camor and put the noose around him. The plan is for Donia Salvar to continue the game and for her to give Locke the remainder of the money at the... Raven's Reach, which I guess is Duke Nicovante's palace, during the Day of Changes, where there's apparently some huge festival or dance or ball or whatever. Right. And so that's the plan. We find out that this is the spider, and they've got this plan to capture Locke. And they've got a pretty accurate read. They don't know who he is, but pretty accurate read on how they're going about and doing this. So pretty sharp. Do you know what you need to put into a book if you want me to just instantly fall in love with it? Spice cake? Oh, close. Okay. That too. But a badass old lady. It's a badass old lady. I am a sucker for a badass old lady in in television or movies or books. So this was a troubling section for me in that regard. Okay. Because I too like the badass old lady. You do. It's a cool trope. And I really want to like Doña Vorchenza. But I have a problem with it because she is living 
this insanely opulent lifestyle paid for by the blood of everybody else in Camor. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I don't think that Dania Vercenza is supposed to be a moral standard. No. I don't think she is supposed to be a good character that we necessarily want to be our granny. But she's also <laughs> well, just... Well, I don't know. I could, you know, I mean... In the, I mean, if she's on your side... In the right circumstances, that could that could be good. <laughs> it's also just such a cool twist on the, the power structure. Yeah. This whole... And we've talked about how much we like the, the egalitarian society of Camor. Yeah. And how women are just kind of anything and everything. And so I absolutely love that the Duke Spider, who we've heard talked about... As the only thing that, you know, Capo Barsabi fears, as the only thing that the, the thieves are really kept in line by, is this frail, you know, she's described as like almost desiccated looking, <laughs> like spindly, collapsing, in collapsing on twig lady. And then she just busts out this like badass attitude. And yeah. you can't not like, I mean, we had a little bit on the, I think our Facebook page or, or Twitter maybe of uh, fantasy casting yeah. for Daniel Forchenza. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I mean, she's the queen of thorns. She really, you yeah, know? very much so. Um, there was a lot that I love about this chapter. Um, first up, one thing that stuck out to me was when uh, Sophia was being hoisted up to visit the countess uh, she's looking out and she's just thinking about how wonderful it is to be an alchemist, you know, because she's looking out at the city and she sees all the, the houses lit by alchemical globes. And, um, she was thinking about how, you know, Bond's mages think they're so great, but alchemy is really the, where it's at. Oh yeah. And what she says Everything's is alchemy these days, everything is alchemy. Um, what she says is it's alchemy that drives back the darkness and there's a lot of like dark light imagery in this book. Yeah, you're right. And especially in this chapter too. In this chapter, you know, and it's talked a lot about the the light coming from the elder glass and I don't think that that's an accidental bit of imagery. I think that's meant to represent something. I could be totally talking out of my ass. I don't know. But for me, I it made me think about how we've never really talked about whether we think that this elder race was good or evil. And as I'm thinking about it, it seems that I've always been under the impression that they were benevolent and that they mm. were driven off by something not benevolent. And so I just think that bit of imagery is interesting. And, and the number of times that light and dark are mentioned is interesting. Um, and I, I, another thing that I just loved is this whole idea of the night tea. Yeah. And uh, apparently that's a Kamori tradition that when a woman asks another woman to have a night tea, it's because she wants to bitch about her husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just kind of understood. Donia Salvara is bitching about tea. her husband being taken advantage of. Yes. Yes. That's what she's. Oh, but what she says about him, you know, because she comes in and, and the Dowager Countess says, is everything okay? You asked for a night tea. Mm. You know, what's going on with your husband? And she says, oh, no. <laughs> Lorenzo is satisfactory in every possible respect. That's <laughs> like, just such yeah. a glowing. <laughs> meh. <laughs> he's meh. I mean. No, he's, he's all right. He's all right. He's okay. Um, I also noticed that, you know, we get a little bit of character stuff with Donna Sophia. You know, as she's she's being dragged up this elevator and she gets off and she she 
graces the porters who just hoisted her up this tower with a smile. And it's just a very cynical thing because she thinks it never hurts to be polite to the people who are hoisting me. Hoisting, hoisting me, me up in this contraption. Not not just to be a good person. Not because it never hurts to be nice in general. <laughs> because you don't want to be nasty to the people who cook your food or hoist your ass up a 40, you know, 40 story cage. And I mean, so for me, Countess Vercenza, last of her name, she's just a badass character and oh yeah whether or not she's moral or or a good guy or not i just really enjoyed her she had some great little zing zingers in there mm-hmm. one of my favorites was um dona sofia says to her uh, many people commonly think that words that come to you you know end up in the ears of the midnighters and she just says well many things are commonly thought but perhaps not commonly thought all the way through <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so she's just this sharp, sharp character. And I, I just absolutely love that she's got a secret lair and she just, you know, stays up all night doing spy stuff. I'm a sucker for a lady spy. <laughs> I, I love it. Well, good. Well, no, she was a, she was a great character for sure. I, I don't, I, I struggle with my like of her because I do not think she's a good character, but she's definitely, I mean, good from a moral standpoint. But she's definitely an interesting and enjoyable character. I question how much this is going to matter. Now, there's the meta reader part of me that says it's not here for no reason, so it's going to matter. But there's another part of me that says, is this really going to become an issue right now? Like, to Locke and Jean, is the spider a concern? Because on one hand, and I'm leaping ahead, but that's okay. We've all read the section, so no worries. So on... So in this section that we read, Jean and Locke lose all of her money. So the idea that they would want to continue the game with the Salvaras to get a chunk of money so they have some cash to operate off of would make sense that they would want to do that. But on the other hand, they have bigger fish to fry. And two, they've lost all of the all of their costumes, all everything they had to really pull off the con. He can't go dressed as Lucas Fairwright anymore. That shit's all gone. And it says that specifically in a later chapter that, that it's all been destroyed. So they're not in a position to continue that con. So, uh, so there's a part of me that's like, if they're not in a position to continue that con and he can't be Lucas Fairwright anymore, then there's not going to be a Raven's uh, reach and there's not on the day of changes. It's not going to happen. So what the hell's all this mean? But it's not there for no reason. So I'm a little perplexed as to what the hell's going to happen. Those are good questions. So are we ready for the interlude? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. So after this, we get into an interlude called the schoolmaster of roses. Where Jean learns to be a bad donkey with a hatchet. He does, yeah. And so both of these interludes are very short. Both of them are very short. And they're kind of one-beat interludes, different than a lot of the other interludes that we've read. And I like that change of pace. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good good change of pace. And I, I think they both really drive something home that's important. So 
one thing I noticed this time with this interlude is how right at the end, uh, Jean is talking about with his teacher about the phrase teeth lessons. Mm -hmm. I wrote that down too. It was really about my only note, actually. His his teacher is telling him about how Kappa Barsavi has was used to be a professor, a college professor. So everything he does is lessons. If he's torturing you for information, it's singing lessons. If he's beating you up, um, it's another kind of lessons. And when he's going to kill you and throw you to the sharks, he calls it teeth lessons. Yeah. So the opening of the next chapter is called Teeth Lessons. Teeth Lessons. We know what we're talking about. Absolutely. And we also just get to see this scene where Jean is introduced to the Wicked Sisters, which are almost a character in their own right, as often as they're <laughs> referred to. Yeah, absolutely. And those are his hatchets. So we get to see him. at He's really just blossomed into his, his maturity as a fighter. And they're trying to decide what his signature, signature weapon is going to be. Yeah. Um, and he, he picks these hatchets. Well, it also sort of gives you a... I mean... The Wicked Sisters play a pretty important part in the next chapter, and it gives you a sense of, you know, why he's able to to do what he's able to do with them. Right. You know, it's laying groundwork, and I feel like there's a lot of groundwork that's been laid for some things that you might otherwise think were ridiculous. And I like that, because it's not like, okay, Jean's the super powerful fighter because he there needs to be a super powerful fighter so we just made him that way yeah you're right it does it's well thought you, through you can see where he gets the skills that he gets yeah absolutely absolutely and he needs them in this next chapter because he's about to get attacked by four giant freaking spiders i know <laughs> so chapter 10 right are we ready to move on to that is called teeth lessons as we as we said and now we finally get the resolution of what happens to Locke after he gets put in the barrel and shoved down the echo hole. So I kind of broke this up into two sections. I had parts one and two, which is kind of everything that happens underneath of the echo hole. And then the rest of the chapter, parts three through six, is kind of everything that happens after that. And did you just draw a giant crying face next to that section? Uh, that's exactly what I have, actually. <laughs> that's that's all of the notes. Yes. Just a giant sobbing face. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty sad. So let's talk about one and two. And that is everything that happens underneath the echo hole with Jean and Bug freeing Locke from the barrel. So what happens is that Locke comes through. Jean and Bug go, oh, shit, there's Locke. They try to go get him out, but on the way, they find that there are four salt devils, which are essentially giant swimming spiders. <laughs> Creepy, right? The All size right. of dogs. Chad has his height. I have spiders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, are, you are terrified of spiders. So you would not have survived this scene. No. These salt devils are solitary ambush predators who are afraid of people. And yet somehow there's a pack of four of them acting in unison to go after Jean and Bug. Somehow. Somehow. So Jean manages to kill them and they manage to free Locke. But it's a pretty important part of the story because it's the second instance we see of the falconer being able to make animals behave in ways that are 
weird or otherwise impossible, things that they wouldn't otherwise do. You know, he's able to look through them and sort of act as though he is sort of, he's sort of steering the ship. He's kind of, uh, in, in A Song of Ice and Fire terms, he's kind of warging into these creatures. Right. You know, which is terrifying. And it explains some stuff that happens in chapter 11 as well. Right. So when we start this chapter, Jean is sort of perched in the rafters, too. So we get to see some of what he's capable of. He's perched sort of in the rafters uh, of this space under this building where the water is coming down. Bug is down below. And he's able to turn on this slippery rafter and throw his hatchet to where it lands in the cask. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, Bug begins to be attacked by these spiders. Yeah. And Jean is able to run along a slippery rafter and dive down. So you can see that he's he's described as being a, a big fellow, bandy-legged and all that. And he's obviously quite nimble as well. So then he's able to leap down and just kill these things with his some by just stepping on them yeah and there's icker and it's gross just the word icker icker is gross icker it's kind of a cool word actually it's not as good as asphalt but <laughs> i'd still dig it icker. it's a good word so and there's a great line here where they're talking about he and bug are saying what is going on and and uh <laughs> and i think bugs says, i don't know why don't you ask him? Yeah, yeah. And he says, I'm sure we can communicate. I speak fluent hatchet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So the other thing I liked about this chapter is the way everything sort of underneath of the echo hole is described. Like I can picture it very clearly. Like it's just really well done uh, in terms of the descriptions and just casting this sort of weird, creepy but also very dangerous space because everything's covered in slime. It's, you know, slippery. It's, it just gives you a real sense of kind of tension, uh, you know, in the situation. It's not like, oh, you hit the water and, you know, and we cracked it open with a hatchet. It's like, no, this is a really precarious situation. And it could have easily gone uh, very differently. Absolutely. And it also speaks to one thing I think we raised in last week's episode, which is, wouldn't don't you think the Grey King and the Falconer would guess that Jean and Bug are going to be down there? And apparently yeah, they did, and they did, and, and they sent four giant attack spiders. Yeah, too. Which I, you can't see me, but every time I say that word, my you dry shoulders heave a little bit. Like, I'm like Ugh, a little. <sighs> it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Moving on. No, well, the, well, there's one thing I want to say. So at the end of chapter two is when they get Locke out of the barrel. Right. So they get Locke out of the barrel. He's unconscious. They perform rudimentary CPR on him to get him to come around and, and vomit up and and get back to life. And at this point, not knowing what's going to happen next, I'm thinking, all right, Locke got out of this way too easily. One, he should be dead. But if he's not dead, he should at least be unconscious with horrible damage to his lungs, making it impo- nearly impossible for him to breathe, let alone get up and travel and walk out of there. So it just seems like the consequences for this whole Grey King business have been too few, too light. Mm-hmm. We're getting out of this way too easily, and this character's got plot armor. No cost. Or he had a healing potion. That's I'm just, you know... Kind of putting you in my headspace. I gotcha. When he gets up and walks out of there, right. I'm like, what the? 
Well, can I say too, when when they're doing the CPR, Jean talks about um, his humors of run cold, restarting his warm humors. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I love that. There is the tiniest, tiniest flavor of steampunk in this book. I think there's a little bit, yeah. Just the, the the whole alchemy, and you know, the couple of times he talks about the warm humors and that. I don't know. It's just well, like Ferrari if you make like a, a really dry yeah. martini and you just wave the. I forget. It's been a long vermouth. time since I've made wave the bottle of vermouth over the glass. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's with this book. They just waved the bottle of steampunk over the book. You know, <laughs> which I I like. So I'm so down it, with it. It sits right next to the parasol protectorate on our bookshelf. I wouldn't say right next to, but... <laughs> well, they're not touching. Very distant cousins. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so I'm putting you in my head space. I gotcha. You know? Okay, I, I understand why when, you said that now. When we're kind of, you know, coming out of part two there. And in part... You're th- like, oh, all these Mary Sues. Yeah, and in part three, you know, Locke and Jean and Bug steal a boat to go sneak back into the Church of Paralandro because they've realized that Kahlo and Galdo are back at the church, and if the Grey King and the Falconer have planted traps for them beneath the Echo Hole, what have they planted in the church? Right, and so at this point, you, you're thinking, okay, they got out of the big danger, and then uh, Jean has this this rousing line of, your moral education is over. Now you're going to learn a thing or two about war. And you're like, okay, the danger's passed. They're going to go. They're going to fuck shit up. And, and that's where you think the narrative is going at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So they sneak back into the church of Paralandro, only to find that the place has been absolutely trashed. And in the room where all the, all, the entire wardrobe has been ransacked or stolen, most of it stolen, they find the bodies of Gallo and Galdo lying on the floor, throat slit. Ah. That was like legit crying. And that was also that was the yeah, so that, sad. That was also the point where I was like, maybe Nazca is really dead. <laughs> because to this point, this has not really been the sort of book where I've gotten the sense that, you know, a shit ton of people are gonna be killed. You know, it's not like Game of Thrones. Also, I think it helped that we were coming out of reading King Killer, where Spoilers for Kingkiller, but if you're listening to this, you've probably listened to our Kingkiller episodes. Not a lot of people die in that book. You know, it's that's not really what it's about. It's a different type of book. So, like, I haven't dealt with a real big character death in quite a while. So, when Nazca was dead, I just sort of felt like, eh, this is a trick. This is sorcery. This is some sort of trickery. Something going on. She's not really dead. No, she's dead. She's dead. And so are a lot of other motherfuckers by the time this is over. Yeah. So the body count is going to is gonna be rising up in this bitch. And it's, for me, it really speaks to how Scotland was able to build up these characters. That, yeah, I, it was, this was a really crip, like crippling blow. I was really sad the first time I read this book. I remember like just kind of putting it down and being like, huh. <laughs> and then the following scene is even worse. Yeah, so what happens... After that is they go to check on them and now Jean falls down and starts having a fit and there's nothing apparent that would be causing it. So so I'm thinking, did he get poisoned or something? What's going on? And then Locke finds that there's a human hand, severed hand, and he 
uh, he doesn't pick it up, but he goes over to look at it, and stitched into the skin on the hand is the name Jean Tannen. And that's when we remember that the falconer had expressed that he could sew his name into a hand and would be able to basically own him. And now Jean Tannen's laying on the floor dying because of this hand. At that point, you know, so before Locks even really had a chance to absorb it, the door opens up and a man walks into the room with a crossbow, looks at Bug, tells him to, to be still, sees that Locke is there and says, wait a minute, you're not supposed to be here. And now all of a sudden the man with the crossbow with one bolt in it has a quandary because one crossbow bolt, two gentlemen bastards, what's going to do? You know, Locke is trying to figure a way out of this situation, but Bug says, fuck this, he can't take both of us and rushes the guy only to get shot through the neck with the crossbow bolt and bleed out on the floor. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah, very sad. It's utterly heartbreaking. Because um, isn't Bug like 13? Yeah. And the conversation that he and Locke then have, yeah. you know, as soon as Locke comes in and sees Callow and Galdo, he says, we should have run, you know, and that's all he can think about is yeah. the times that Jean especially said, let's get out of here. And Callow, and, and the twins too. And the twins too. And, and he said, nope. We can handle this. So that's all he can think about at this point. And Locke, you know, as Bug is shot, he is able to charge the man with the crossbow and at least knock him unconscious. He is able to fling a hatchet and disables him. And and he runs to Bug and says, um, forgive me. You know, he just wants forgiveness. And he also wants Bug to blame him. You know, and he says, forgive me. We should have run my pride. And Bug says, your pride was justified gentleman bastard and at the end and bug wants to make sure he's not an apprentice anymore Greasers and Locke, all the way yep and Locke is just begging him to say this is my fault like say this is my fault he won't do it it's a very heart-wrenching scene Locke is lying there with bug dying in his arms and he hears kyle and galdor are already dead jean tannen is over there choking on his own bile when he realizes oh no he forgot about the John and the hand. I mean, all this has happened in seconds, you know. He walks over and he smashes the hand, which, you know, is the only positive thing that's happened so far, and is able to release Jean Tannen from the spell. So one thing I thought was interesting here, a couple of things I thought were interesting. First is that the first thing that Jean says to Locke is, forgive me, forgive me, I couldn't, I couldn't move. Yeah. And Locke is like, don't even... Don't even go there. Um, but but Locke is still struggling with the same... With his own guilt. With his own guilt. He doesn't even think twice about the concept of somehow blaming Jean. Right. What could Jean have done? Right. But he doesn't have that same grace for himself. Right. And he, he promises his friends a death offering that will make the gods take notice. Yeah. And in the next... This and the next section, we start to see some a really interesting theme develop. So the next section, they wake the assassin up and basically stand over him all bloody and um, scare the shit out of him. Well, one of the things that's interesting about that is he, when he's talking to, to the, one of the, uh, the great King's men, you know, the guy who's the assassin, you know, and he says basically beg for mercy or beg for your life. And he's like, 
you know, when, when the man does, he says, too bad you're not going to get it. He pulls the shark's tooth out from underneath of his shirt that Chains gave him all those years ago. And he said, there was a time when I felt shame, shame for being guilty for murdering. No more. Now I'm going to murder, and I'm going to murder everybody connected to the Grey King. And this part is such a pivotal moment in this character's development, and it makes me think about Henry VI again, because that play, one of the the big themes about it is what happens when family ties break down, what happens to individuals, what happens to society. And right now we've seen Locke's chosen family He's just lost half of them. So, you know, and in the Henry VI play, spoilers for Henry VI. (laughs) But at the end, Richard, the character who has this monologue, uh, kills Henry, the king, and basically just severs ties with his family. And so that severing of ties is, is a really important decision and kind of a pivotal moment for him. And it really, the play is kind of about what happens when family ties break down. So then we see that now Locke losing half of his family and making a decision to become a murderer again. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Immediately before this, we had Donna Forchenza, the spider, and her man, and they're talking about the Thorn of Camor and what do they know about him. And it's mentioned several times that he doesn't kill people. Yeah, that is you know? a bloodless He doesn't leave criminal. a trail of bodies. He doesn't kill people. Mm-hmm. So this is a very important moment for this character. Absolutely. And, you know, what happens next is by far the most cruelty we've ever seen out of Locke and Jean. Because even when Locke was a murderous little bastard as a child, he wasn't doing it cruelly. He was getting people killed, you know... By accident. By accident. You know, through uh, being naive, you know, and not realizing what he was doing. But this is not only deliberate, but it's torturous. They take the man and cripple both of his knees so he couldn't possibly walk, and then they set the whole place on fire so that he's going to burn to death inside of there. Now, I'm not feeling I'm not feeling bad for the assassin. Don't get me wrong, but that's a pretty cold ass thing to do. And he says, "When you see my friends, tell them there are more of you on the way." And then he blows him up. Drops a match. It's, it's very badass. It's yeah. It's very like uh Almost like spaghetti western, like you know, like how is this book not a movie yet? Yes, you know, <laughs> yes. So uh, yeah, definitely a, a badass scene for sure. The, the other thing we find out that we haven't mentioned yet is that the Gray King also took all of their money, right? Every single coin. Yep. And so took it, all the cash. I took all that cash. And now I'm like, well, now I know how he paid for the Falconer. Yep. And the other, you know, at this point, I'm like, perhaps the cost was too much. Like, a few sections ago, I was like, they got off way too easy. And now I'm like, okay, they didn't, they, they did not, they did get, not off easy. get off easy. Not at all. And we did, I never said this on the podcast, but. You and I were talking last week, and and I remember I said that there were some theories that I had that I realized, oh, no, wait, that doesn't make sense. You know, and one of the theories that I had 
was that they were trying to set lockup specifically to get him out of the Church of Paralandro and separate them so that only Calo and Galdo would be there at the church so they could steal all the gold. You do get credit for that. Listeners, he gets credit. He did say that. <laughs> I thought it was for completely different reasons. Right. But it but it crossed my mind that they were trying to set them up so they could get their money. You know, but what I thought had happened is that maybe it was Barsavi who had actually learned about what was going on. Uh, you know, so so I had a pretty tinfoil kind of theory about why that would happen. So um, I don't feel good about that. Your tinfoil theories are getting better. I think sometimes they sometimes they cash in. So yeah, but this was a it was a pretty devastating chapter. And then we're followed with the tale of the two handball players. Yeah, which I just love this interlude. And again, it's a one beat interlude, but it's it's the perfect beat between the the chapters that it's between. I have one note for this interlude. I think I know what it is. Say it. Over the line, dude. (laughs) Mark it a zero, Smokey. (laughs) Mark it a zero. Our brains are too similar. It's getting a little scary. (laughs) Absolutely. That's what I thought of. (laughs) Sorry, Smokey. League play. <laughs> Over the line. So, any... <laughs> the only... That's that's it. I'm done. I ain't got nothing else to say. This is a professional podcast, man. We have to, <laughs> we have to at least talk about the chapter. You can talk about whatever you want to. <laughs> so, this chapter... You want a toe, I'll get you a toe. <laughs> <laughs> The whites, dude. (laughs) So this chapter is three pages long. It talks about the Komori sport of handball and how important it is. They have games between the different districts. And the story of these two handball players who are best friends growing up. And they have a big, important handball game. And one is the handball judge and one is the player. And the judge does not rule in his friend's favor. And they, they... get in a big fight and go their separate ways. And 35, 40 years later, the judge comes back into town and he runs up and he sees his old friend and he says, oh, you know, I haven't seen you in all these years. The gods are good to see you again. And without even saying a word, his old friend takes his knife and just shoves it in his stomach and says, not across the line, my ass. (laughs) Shoves him in the water. (laughs) So we, you know, the kind of the point of all this um, and I'm just going to read from page 481, is that Varari, Karthani, and Lashani not, nod knowingly when they hear this story. They assume it to be apocryphal because it confirms something they claim to know in their hearts, that Komori are all God's damn crazy. Komori, on the other hand, regard it as a valuable reminder against procrastinating in matters of revenge, or if one cannot take satisfaction immediately on the virtue of having a long memory. So lots of vengeance going on. Yeah, and it talks about how central to Komori culture the concept of vengeance is, which also explains a great deal of why Barsabi behaved the way he did. Right, and we also are going to, so we're going from Locke vowing vengeance, Mm -hmm. and now we get to hear a little bit about the Grey King's motive, sort of, 
um, as as he, we kind of in the next chapter get to see the fruition of his plans. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so chapter 11 begins back in the boat, Jean and Locke in the bay trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do now. You know, they had to leave the burning church of Perilandro with their friends' corpses in it. They don't have a place to go. They don't have money. They have, like, a handful of, like, disguises, like a couple of items, like almost nothing that they've amassed do they have. And it's that moment where they're like, what the, What are we going to do? Like, what is going on? And they start trying to figure out why this happened to them and what would the Grey King do? And that's where Locke starts to put two and two together and realize that the Grey King did all of this so that Barsavi would think he was dead throw open the gates to the floating grave, the aptly named, unfortunately named floating grave, and have a huge rebel and put his guard down so that he could take advantage and attack him. And that's exactly what happens. And we see in this, before we get to that, we see in this little section where they're traveling and trying to figure out what to do, the importance of their relationship with each other. Yeah, And we've talked a little bit about some of the themes of this book and one of them being family and the importance of relationships and how that's kind of the difference we see between the gentleman bastards and the other characters in the book, really. Yeah. Um, some of the thieves, a lot of the nobility that we've met, um, they, they don't have those those family bonds or close relationships with each other. Not all of them. Um, I would say that, you know, Donna Sophia and her husband obviously have a bond with each other, but... You know, this is what makes the Gentleman Bastards different from other gangs. Well, most of the other gangs are still built, at least that we've seen, are built on power or fear or money. You know, the Gentleman Bastards is built on love. It's built on brotherly love and education. It's very interesting because we've talked about a little bit about Machiavelli and Machiavelli is mentioned in the second of those two quotes that we talked about that were quotes from Henry VI. And I think Richard refers to himself as a Machiavelli or, or someone who is going to be scheming and brutal. And it's interesting when you look at the philosophy that's in The Prince, Machiavelli really is all about the most important thing in a leader is having absolute power. Um, it may, it doesn't make any sense to have good laws if you can't enforce them. So really, as long as you have absolute power or you have the strength to take power, that's the only justification you need for doing it. So, and Machiavelli was not about trying to get people to like you. And he, he talked about bonds of love between people as being kind of worthless, you know, and, and transient. So fear was more important than love at motivating people was his thing. Yeah. From what I understand. Yeah, um, I mean, thumbnail sketch. Yeah. Right. So anyway, I just think that, you know, that's, it's deliberate that this is brought up. And then we see the way that the gentleman bastards operate versus the way that these other gangs operate. And in this scene, we really see Locke just beating himself up and feeling yeah. sorry for himself. And as Jean says to him, not everything miserable that happens to us stems directly from one of your choices, you know? And he's like, kind of, then he's kind of like, sack up, bro. He says, I need the thorn of Camor, you know? And as long as they have each other, you get the sense that they're going to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you really 
can't blame Locke for any of this that's happening. This is happening to them because of the Grey King and the Falconer, not because of anything they did. You know, and if they had run, the reason why Locke didn't want to run is because he figured they would find them and kill every one of them. And if they had run, that's probably what would have happened. It probably is. So Locke really has no reason to be beating himself up here. They're victims of some shitty people. Right. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice backdrop, the relationships between these people and then just the whole like fear-based relationships that are pretty much across the board in all the other characters. Yeah. Many of the other characters. Absolutely. Yeah. So we get into the floating grave, huge party. Locke sneaks in, puts a beard on, sneaks in, and he's just kind of watching what's happening. Everybody's drinking. Barsavi comes up, wants to have his little speech. And then the uh, Berengius sisters propose that they have a teeth show. And they open up a, a deck, a hole, for lack of a better word, in the bottom of the ship. Was I right? Is that where this is happening? Yeah. So there's, you know, picture a, a, An a hole cut, but yeah. it's... There are supports under the ship. So the ship is kind of being held up. Yeah. And the supports are about, you know, six to eight inches wide, and they're holding up this platform. And so the platform can be pulled up. And then what happens is the sisters will then leap from mm-hmm. back and forth between these supports. Yeah. Uh, which are spaced, you know, five feet apart. And they'll kill these sharks, which apparently in Camor, sharks regularly leap out of the water. Leaping flying sharks. It's a Damn Sharknado up in here. <laughs> yeah. And so they put, you know, some sort of like liquid or powdered chum in the water to attract some alchemical thing to attract sharks. And shortly thereafter, they attract about a six foot shark. And this, you know, they they start to begin to have their teeth show and the shark leaps way up out of the water. And in a move that is still insane... <laughs> lands teeth first on top of Kappa Barsavi. Now, at first I'm like, what the fuck? That's outlandish. But I remembered the crazy swimming spiders and the fact that the falconer can basically warg into and control these animals. You know what? The falconer rolled a natural 20. Hell yeah, he DM did. had to let him do whatever he wanted. <laughs> yeah, like, well, okay. I want a fucking shark to jump out of the water and land right on his right arm. That's completely ludicrous. Roll the dice. <laughs> I got a 20? Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I guarantee in the editing room, when Scott Lynch was sitting down with his editors, they were like, Really? A shark? He's like, dude, that's how it happened. (laughs) So I love that this book comes right up to the edge of camp and doesn't quite cross it, but it just gets there, almost there, just kind of looking at it. I like that. It's definitely staring it in the eye. Sense of steampunk and like (laughs) it's almost over the top. We have... Killers massaging bags of bloody glass until someone dies. I mean, <laughs> it's, I like it. it. It was a little over the top. But again, <laughs> the falconer is able to control these animals. So Flying shark. 
the flying sharks. So freaking laser beams. <laughs> so you know, if he wants to jump up and and eat Kappa Barsavi's arm off, that's what he can do. And as soon as it happens, the Berengius sisters both basically brain the two brothers. And then, in short order, a huge fight ensues, and essentially the Grey King's men, his sisters, literally the twins are his sisters, are able to pretty much get the whole thing under control pretty quickly. It also seems evident to Locke that what the Grey King has been doing, and not just taking out Barsavi's most loyal garistas, he's been working deals with their lieutenants. Because yeah. as soon as he gets up, so the Grey King gets up and says, I am now Kappa Raza, which Raza means, apparently means revenge in Throne Theron. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and I want to be your, you know, your Kappa, and everyone who kneels to me will continue on. And, and right away, all these gangs are like, I, I'll i do it, I'll do it. And so yeah. Locke realizes, oh, wait, this has been going on and being set up for a long time. For a long time, yeah. And so, you know, Caparaza then turns to Barsavi, who's laying on the ground bleeding, and, and he's like, I have wiped you out, dude. Game, set, match. Yep. Oh, and I killed your wife, too. Yeah, o- on top of it. Mm-hmm. So he, he, you know, he, he tells him that, do you remember when your wife died and you thought it was stomach tumors, but remember how she relied on the Berengia sisters to feed her, you know, that was me, bro. It was always me. So, and then when Barsavi asks him why he leans down and whispers something in his ear, which we don't get to know yet. We don't get to know yet. But, but when he does it, what do you, I suspect it has something to do with handball and crossing some sort of line. <laughs> there was a match of handball 35 years ago. It did not go the way the Grey King wanted it to go. Do you want to know what he says? What does he say? He says, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger. In <laughs> you kill my car I kill your fucking car <laughs> spoilers for uh, the big Lebowski the big Lebowski <laughs> oh, goodness. So, so now Caparaza has an army of thieves basically and Locke's like oh, shit you know he went from having like maybe six guys and a bonds mage to now having like 300 guys Yeah, he's gonna have to kill a lot of people so, so Locke proceeds to go out and collapse in the street, basically. Yeah. And that, that's kind of where we leave him. Yeah. Um, and and the, the last section of this chapter uh, is kind of an aside. It, it kind of breaks away from the action, and we see a, a ship come into the harbor. Yeah, plague And they're ship. flying yellow plague lights. And the, the harbor guys are like, oh, is this some jackass that doesn't know what color lights and then oh no they find out it's it's really a plague ship and yeah. there are 60 people on board and 20 of them are dead and the 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 doctor is dead and and they're like okay well you guys gotta stay out there or we're gonna kill your asses and burn you to the ground so basically they're given what's called plague harbor where they're allowed to sit there but if they try to get off the ship or send anything to shore they get killed and burned up yeah mm-hmm. they can leave if they want to but they're just stuck there so yeah. 
we're sure this is going to matter at some point. But we don't know. But we don't know how. At this point, yeah. And that's where we end it. And that's where we end it. So Locke collapsing in the street, a random plague ship that doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything. Then the middle of the Salvara game, you know, four touches in, finding out who the spider is, no idea how that's going to resolve itself. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of strands in the old Duder's head. <laughs> I was just going to say that. A lot of ins, a lot of outs. <laughs> I tell you, Maud. So, yeah, I can't wait to read. So, predictions. Oh, man, I knew you were going to ask so me that. I'm excited. I, I, I really only have two. Uh, and they're both weak-ass predictions. Like, I just I don't have a real good sense. So, I, I predict that somehow Locke and Jean are going to attempt to continue the game with the Don and the Donia because they need money. I have no idea how, but I think they're going to somehow try to try to reestablish something to get involved there. And the other is that we will, we will meet Sabatha in the next section. All right. Those are my predictions. Noted predictions. Don't know. Don't know. Don't feel good about it. But I got, uh, we we didn't mention a couple of predictions that I got right. Yeah. Let's talk about this. So I said that the whole reason behind this thing with the Grey King trying to, to have Locke out there was so that he could get Barsavi to think that he was dead, have a giant party, and that he would attack him at the party. You did say that. I did. And that's exactly what happened. And I also said that the Berengius twist sisters were in his employ. I did not think they would be his actual sisters, but I did say that they were working for the Grey King. I love that you predicted that. And this time through, I noticed how often the Berengia sisters were referred to as Barsavi's Berengia sisters. They were always, they were never the Berengia sisters. They were his Berengia sisters. Mm. And I thought that was interesting. That's interesting. I did not pick up on that. Good, good. All right, are you ready to hear some listener interactions? Absolutely. All right, so we have a few. So I do not know exactly how to pronounce this name. Uh, Aeth McDermott, I believe, uh, says, The Lies of Locke Lamora is brilliant. Actually, I cannot recommend it highly enough, and I read a fair bit of fantasy for relaxation. Red Sea Under Red Skies is even better. And that is a new follower on Twitter. Ian James Crones asks you because I haven't read Mistborn. Locke and crew versus Kaiser's crew from Mistborn or Kessler? I can't. Kelsier? Kelsier, yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, so Locke and crew versus Kelsier's crew from Mistborn. Let's say they've got to steal the moon from King Killer Carnival. Oh, gosh. I mean... Are we getting into spoilers for Mistborn territory here? No, I mean, I can just say generally, you know, Kelsier's crew has magic powers, which Locke and his crew don't have. Um, So they have that up on them. Um, They're a little less devious and manipulative than Locke and his friends. Um, Yeah, I don't know. 
I don't know who would steal the moon first. I I think the Fae would be more enchanted by Locke and his guys, honestly. So if it had to do with charming the Fae, I think the gentleman bastards would have it. Mm, but it depends on what, what you needed to do to steal the moon. I, I think it's been very confusing up till now as for in the King Killer as far as what what the moon represents or how where, that even happened where, in the first place. Yeah, where it goes when it's out of the sky. So Good question. I'm good gonna be one, thinking right? about that all night. <laughs> Elliot Cossum uh says he can finally start his dive into the lives of Locke Lamora, and he has started his video series on the lives of Locke Lamora. And he mentioned us in the in the video, and we thank him for it. I did not know that he was going to read the lives of Locke Lamora, so I was not anticipating that. So uh, Elliot is not listening to the podcast right now because he doesn't want to be influenced by us. So when he's done, he's going to come back and listen. So when you get to this, welcome. He had a very succinct and charming way of describing Scott Lynch's world building. Yes. So I won't spoil that for you, but it made me chuckle. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's good stuff. So also on Twitter, you put out there that you were trying to get your notes ready for this uh, week's book club, but going down rabbit holes and rereading The Prince and the Henry VI plays while brushing up on War of Roses history. And uh, that also none of the kids had clean clothes and send help. Now, do we got to bring that up again? (laughs) So that led to a long discussion between uh, you and Adam and Theo kind of going back and forth. And I'm not going to reread the whole thing, but it was an entertaining discussion that's out there. Did you know there was probably two years of our lives, listeners, that we didn't fold laundry in our house? (laughs) And I'm putting this out there for the wide world, but when when all four of our kids were under the age of six, it was um, it was a very intense time. And so we basically had this thing we called the laundry couch. And I would just, I would wash the clothes, but then I would just put them on the couch. And when you got dressed in the, we, we got them all dressed at the same time anyway. So, you know, it just made more sense to be like, go to the laundry couch. Yeah, that's true. But then we couldn't let anyone in our house because. Just not that room. Because there's a laundry couch. It's basically our dresser. Uh, it was a dark time. It was a dark time. I'm not sure why I felt compelled to tell that story. <laughs> Just to show that I've grown as a person. Oh. So uh, Theo also linked a thread to us uh, where a group of people on Twitter were attempting to fantasy cast the new Dune movie. And that was a pretty interesting thread. I'm not going to go through it. Again, I won't go through and read it. But a lot of interesting suggestions for who could play, you know, particularly some fun suggestions for who could play Duncan Idaho. And I am all for, like, there was a lot of really cool, uh, diverse casting. And I thought that's good because the movie Dune was not cast with any degree of diversity at all. Not really. But the actual book has a, a lot of very diverse people from, you know, a, a ton of different backgrounds, you know, people of color, you know, women, men didn't really portray in the original movie. So a lot of these fa- uh, fan casts were, you know, very diverse people. But I have to say, for a very important plot reason, Duncan Idaho cannot be a woman. Duncan, I would agree. Duncan yeah. has got to be a dude. 
I would agree. It's kind of important in the, in some of the later books, so you can't mess with so that one. I would so much money to see Idris Elba play Duncan Idaho. Uh, was it the Gurney Halleck was the one that kept coming up for Idris Elba or was the one they suggested for Idris Elba? I mean, they I can think. suggest all they want, but I'm just saying what, I mean, I'm going to pay money to good, see this movie. Yeah, anyway. he would be a good Duncan Idaho. That would be just, I, I would have to leave the house for a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> Duncan Idaho. I mean, you asked me for my top three in my, my fictional harem, but he's, he's in there too. Yeah, he, he's, he's up there. <laughs> he's I, up there. He's definitely in the top five. Okay, so Theo also said, uh, who would you cast as uh, Donia Vercenza? Uh, Dame Maggie Smith, right? It's hard to pick. There's a lot of really cool badass. There are so many old, old badass women. old ladies, yeah. Maggie Smith, though, does have that like very like shriveled, like she's not solid looking. Yeah, yeah. Not like, who was the little actress who played the Queen of Thorns? Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I was like, Elena Terrell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I can't remember. I'm drawing a blank right now. It's too damn early in the morning. Uh, but um, but she, yeah, a little too solid, a little too healthy to play that role. We also had a another review on iTunes. Sweet. So we got a five-star review from Lefties44, and it says, Awesome Sauce. I very much enjoyed this podcast. I've only listened so far to the two books from the Kingkiller Chronicles. Very helpful, very well done. The observations made by the couple are typically very good, though I do disagree with them on some points, especially for a book that is this deep. I encourage reading along with them for the podcast, but I would also advise you to read the books on your own first. This gives you the the ability to come up with your own predictions and theories without any external bias. Either way, it's a fantastic book and podcast. Thanks to Joe Hurst for recommending both to me. Fantastic. So thank you, Lefties44, and thank you, Joe Hurst. Yeah. Do we have anything else? Do you have anything else? Nope. Okay. So thanks, everybody, for listening to episode 38. And what are we reading next week through chapter 13, correct? Yeah. <laughs> through chapter 13. You can find us on the Duke and Duchess podcast.com on Twitter at the D and D podcast. D is in David and as in Nancy D is in David podcast on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess. Also enjoy our Facebook group by looking for the Duke and Duchess podcast group on Facebook. And if you have any questions, for the Duchess, if you have advice that you need for the Duchess, please email us at advice at the Duke and Duchess Podcast dot com. Good night, everybody. Good night. Mm-hmm.